0: The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. So if you've looked at your bulletin, you'll notice we're going to try to get through a lot of chapters of Daniel. So That means we're going to go through 8, 10, 11, and 12 today, and 9 next week. And so that means we're not going to get to all the particulars in it. We're not going to explain everything, but my hope for us uh, in this uh, look at, uh, at Daniel is to give you some tools, uh, to give you the ability to read it in a way that is going to be meaningful to you, to maybe uh, dispel uh, some of the wrong ways of approaching uh, the, look, uh, the study of prophecy and of apocalyptic literature. Uh, and so we're going to come this morning... And we're going to look at a fascinating section of the dreams and visions of Daniel. Things that were used by God to predict what was happening in his contemporary setting as well as pointing to even the very end of times. And so let's come not with human understanding, but ask for God to bless us with his spiritual understanding. Let's pray. Father, we do come and we need you to teach us for we are asking too much to understand and fathom the mind of our Creator. We are asking too much to be able to know the true meaning of these words on our own. But you've not left us on our own. You've given us your Spirit that is now here teaching us through your Word. Would we, in humility, submit ourselves to your Word uh, to grow in our understanding of it. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to read different sections, so we're not going to read a long, lengthy section to begin with uh, this morning, other than to simply say, in beginning in verse eight or chapter 8, it says this, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue him from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west, Across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat was, had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he enraged against him, and struck the ram, and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land that is Israel. This is God's Word. And it's confusing. What in the world? I remember as a a boy in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, a thunderstorm came and we were in Tornado Alley and so when those storms came, it it always elicited great fear because we weren't sure if we would have to run down into the basement uh, to get down into the back corner of the house because a tornado would come because they had come through before and, and we'd seen their destruction. And I was in my bedroom And I remember looking up in the middle of this thunderstorm with the lightning going, and there was a wolf trying to get into my window. Now, my window was 20 feet off the ground, so obviously there was no real wolf. But that impression of an 8-year-old boy, I still remember as if it was last night as a 48-year-old man. Because this dream was so real uh, that it impressed, that it affected me. Daniel was in the middle of having these kind of dreams. They were vivid uh, and and they were poignant uh, and they had images and illusions and creatures and all of this stuff was going on. And we read later within these passages that it overwhelmed Daniel so much uh, that he couldn't speak, he couldn't stand, he couldn't eat. He he was overwhelmed by these dreams and these visions. Now in the Scripture, these visions and these dreams of rams and of goats and of horns Uh, and of angelic beings and of kings of the north and kings of the south uh, and all of this stuff, they're within a genre of scripture called apocalyptic literature. You can go read some about that. But apocalyptic literature simply is this by way of introduction this week. Apocalyptic literature is a revelation of the ending of this present age. It's a picture of things that are to come, things that are going to happen. And so for Daniel, we talked about this a little bit last week, He was envisioning and seeing things to come. But the thing about apocalyptic literature that's different from historic narrative is it uses metaphor. Uh, It uses imagery. We talked last week about lions with wings and with bears with a hunchback uh, and with all the different images. And this week we have a ram with a couple of horns, but one horn is a snaggle horn and one horn is a straighter, bigger horn. And then this woolly goat comes around and he's got four horns or got one horn and then the one horn gets knocked away and four horns come up in its place and then those four leave and one horn comes back up again. And we're to say, what in the world? Well, what we're going to look at today and what I want to explain to you is simply some things that we should learn from apocalyptic literature, especially from the literature of Daniel, uh, from this apocalyptic literature in Daniel, that we're going to see uh, some specific things that we're to take away And I'm going to give you seven things that I want you to walk away uh, understanding a little bit more today that should help you uh, as you engage these scriptures. For most people, either, there's probably about three ways that you read these. One, you don't read them at all. It's too overwhelming. It's too confusing. So let's do, God, I'll open my Bible to anything other than Daniel. And you point, and most of your oil marks and ink marks are in the New Testament, those few pages to the very far right, with the exception of Revelation, uh, and you don't even touch the Old Testament, especially Daniel. So you don't even touch it. The other is that you study the apocalyptic literature, and you're looking for the wrong things in it. You're trying to understand exactly when Jesus is going to return. You're trying to understand the times Uh, You feel an earthquake and you go, okay, it's the beginning of the end times. You see a war that begins, and so the rapture is going to have to start if you believe in a rapture. uh, and, And you believe, and you go, and so you're studying it for all of the wrong reasons. You're asking the wrong questions of the text. Or you come at it, I believe, in a little bit broader way. And you address the scriptures as God's very holy and inerrant word. But what you take away are broader themes. Versus the specifics of all the little uh, jots and tittles that are there. And so what's what we're going to look at today is some of these broader themes for us. And the first thing that I want you to see uh, is this. When you study the apocalyptic literature, when we're studying these passages of Daniel 8 and 9, we're going to really study 9 next week as a matter of prayer, but 10 and 11 and 12, what you learn primarily and first and foremost is you learn the nature of human evil you see the nature of human evil. And and the way that God has to describe evil within the world is it's monstrous. He, He creates an image that says evil within the world is not something to be trifled with. It isn't sweet and it's not cuddly, but it comes in the form of deformed beasts, of things that are outside of the created order, Things that have a desire to destroy. It speaks of blood. It speaks of ribs in their mouths. It speaks of crushing and destroying people. So what we gain within this is what you have to understand is this. I don't know exactly what every beast means or who it means, but I know this. It shows that evil is present and evil is destructive and evil is monstrous. Every monster that you see in the world, every person that you could consider monstrous Hitler, Pol Pot, Stalin. all of the different pictures of a monster in your mind are evil. but not every person and not everything that is evil in the world comes across as monstrous. Legislation that says that it's okay to, to kill children. Legislation that says in uh, that it's wrong, to be able to speak for Christ, they don't seem monstrous on the outside, but inside very much so. Things that are monstrous, they don't seem so monstrous, but they're still so evil. The return on investment that Satan has with a simple, inappropriate touch of a man to a young girl or a man to a young boy it doesn't seem evil for that inappropriate touch, but it's monstrous because of the destruction and the confusion and the return on that investment of five, six seconds and how a life is confused and, and understood. It didn't look monstrous, but it was evil. And so what we learn from this is that all of evil is monstrous and it's not to be trifled with. It is not to be, to be made an ally We don't just try uh, to castrate it so that it will stand over and not be as aggressive, but we have to recognize that evil is evil and its ultimate desire is to crush and to destroy you. Christ says that Satan is going around as a lion, prowling for the purpose of what? To destroy you. That when God speaks to Cain and he says, Cain, where's your brother? He says, Who am I, my brother's keeper? He says, can be very careful. Evil is crouching, and its desire is for you. What crouches? He puts it in the picture of a cat, of a feline. Do you know why a feline or a cat crouches? It crouches to hide itself, and it crouches to bring its power on you very quickly. Don't think that just because you see cuddly little whiskers in the bushes that it's going to be a little tomcat. And that's what we do so often with evil. And what the apocalyptic literature says is this, hey, this is what I understand about the nature of human evil. It's incredibly monstrous. It's powerful. Not to be trifled with. And its design and its desire is to break God's beautiful shalom within this world. That's its design. So That's the first thing we learn. We learn the nature of evil within the world. We learn This. We learn, secondly, that the symbolic numbers that are within of these visions are not for date setting. The symbolic numbers that you find within all of these visions are not for date setting, but they're for the comfort of the saints. Now, that may be new to you, but let's look at some of these great numbers. In Daniel 7, that there's going to be a season and a time and a time and a times and half times. In Daniel 8, there's going to be 23 evenings and mornings. In Daniel 9, there's going to be 70 weeks and 63 weeks. Why the differential? In Daniel 10, there's going to be 21 days. In Daniel 12, there's going to be 1,290 days and 1,335 days. What in the world is all of this about? It's not so that we can understand exactly when things are going to happen but it's to comfort us in this way. Every ruler, every leader, every empire that's mentioned within these passages of Scripture, the empires of the North, the kings of the South, uh, the goats and the rams, the big horns, the little horns, the hunchback bears, all of them have an expiration date. They all end. They have an end of their days. That's what you're supposed to understand. That's the comfort that comes. Because of this. Hey, this is awesome. This is terrifying. This is overwhelming. Oh, but that one ends one day. Oh, but then there's the Medo-Persians. They end one day. No, but then there's the Greeks. Oh, but they end one day. Then there's the Romans. Oh, but they end one day day now oh, then there's communist China but it will end one day and then there's uh, Russia and it will end one day and then there's American democracy and it will end one day A- and then there's this and it will end one day all of these things have an expiration date on them and it should bring you great comfort in this the only person described in all of these passages of scripture that has no expiration date is the king of kings is the ancient of days is the son of man is the one Christ who's described isn't that good news because it seems kind of silly this week to say this. Awesome, I'm putting all of my hope uh, in Trump. This is fantastic for four, eight possibly years. And then he's going to be gone. And then I'm going to put all my hope in that next person for four, maybe eight years. And then I'm going to put all my hope into another person that's going to die and be buried one day. Ugh, ah, what? Maybe we should put our hope in one who doesn't have an expiration date. It says that His throne is eternal. And that the kingdom has no end. That's what the dates are for. So don't get so caught up in the dates. Some of you may have on your shelves a book written in 1994 called 94 Reasons that Jesus is going to return in 94. It's a real book. That author had the audacity to write a new book in 2014. Honestly. There's a church in our area that was publicizing on uh, the radio yesterday that they're having today a gathering at their church to understand the days and the times so that we know when Jesus will return. You're looking at the wrong things, folks. You know what I know about Jesus returning? He will. Because he says, I'll come like a thief in the night. I'll come when no one's expecting it. I'm going to come. Now everyone's going to know when I come because I'm going to come in the glory of my Father and the clouds coming down and all of the world is going to understand this but no one's going to be able to predict it and if anybody can predict it, you need to run the other way because it's non-biblical because that's not the point of this. The point of these dates and the point of these numbers is to say this, they're spans and they're days but these things are to bring us comfort by reminding us that God is in control of every single day situation. I'll explain it a little bit further, Uh, but Alexander the Great is described in uh, Daniel chapter 8 as the woolly goat with the one horn. That's Alexander the Great. One of the greatest military minds that the world has ever produced, and he is a footnote in this story. Because what it says about Alexander the Great is this, he wasn't that great because he died around 33 years of age. And you can go see his tomb. And it's still full. What it's saying is this. God gives us dates. He gives us numbers to understand that there is one who never dies, who has no end of days, and that God calls us to live in the present while waiting for the hope of the future. That we live in the present. We're engaged fully in the present, but we always have a hope to the future. And we recognize this. I'm have no desire that American democracy and capitalism needs to end. But I'm not staking my claim of salvation and hope in it. Because what I've learned through a study of history is that every civilization comes to an end and it's replaced by another civilization. And so we're, we're silly if we think that this is the one that's going to get us to heaven. So we learn the nature of human evil. We learn that the symbols and the numbers and the visions are not date-setting, but they're for comfort, We see, third, this. We see that there are divine realities behind the human conflicts in history. We see that there are divine realities behind human conflicts in history. Look at chapter 10. He says this, In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks, And he goes on, and he's confused by this, and he picks up there in chapter 10, uh, and he goes over, and it says in verse 18, again, once having appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke, he strengthened, and let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. What's it saying? He's saying this. There are battles with the Medo-Persian kings. There is truly a Cyrus, and there's truly a Xerxes, the first who was married to Esther. Uh, There was an Alexander uh, the Great. Uh, There were four kings who came up underneath him, generals. Uh, There were the Seleucids and the Polemiacs, uh, and there was uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, and, and there were all of these battles that were taking place, but it's more than a human story. There is a spiritual cosmic reality behind it, and the cosmic reality behind it is evil is fighting and contending against God and good in the world. There is something more to the story. That's why Paul can say, Paul understood Daniel, and that's why he could say with such confidence, Your battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against principalities and powers of this present evil age. He's saying there's a story behind the story, and you'll never understand what's going on in the world unless you understand what's going on in the reality beyond this world. That you have to know Ecclesiastes, and when we studied it, we said this, if all there is is life under the sun and everything is vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's only when we understand that there's one who is beyond the sun. When there's one who is saying, I'm contending against evil. I'm fighting this battle. We see that there are these divine realities behind human conflict. There will always be wars and rumors of war and suffering throughout the course of history. But these are the pictures of spiritual forces at war behind the scenes of human history. So we see the divine realities behind the human conflict. And then we see the fourth thing. We said uh, that what we understand is we learn the nature of human evil. We know that the signs, that the numbers and all are given to us for our comfort. That we see the divine realities behind the human conflict. That there is this Christ who is fighting. There's Michael and there's Gabriel and there's all of the hosts of heaven fighting against those who would stand against them. Remember we said all of Scripture is a footnote to Genesis 3.15 that it says that I will put enmity between your seed and between her seed and there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and the seed of the serpent will bruise you on the heel not a mortal wound but the seed of the woman will bruise him and crush him on the head a mortal wound at the cross it's conflict from the very beginning of time and before time we see it played out what we also learn is this that in spite of present appearances, God is in control and he will win the victory. In spite of present appearances, God is in control and he will win the victory. Don't forget this amazing truth that God's people are not in conflict alone. Isn't that good to know? That you're fighting not by yourself, but it says that I've given you these powers. He says there are heavenly beings, Gabriel in chapter 9. Michael in chapter 10, uh, that there's one who was in the form and the Son of Man in chapter 7 and chapter 10. The Ancient of Days is seated uh, upon His throne. That Christ comes and in the middle of Daniel being overwhelmed uh, by this vision, it says that He couldn't even stand up. It says that the Son of Man, Christ, reached down and touched His body and He was able to stand. That it was given Him strength. And then it said later in that same chapter, it said that He was unable to speak. And it said that this one in the form of a man touched his lips and gave him words to say. That Christ is there. That Christ is here. That He is fighting the battle on our behalf and with us. But that it calls us in this life. That we are living the life of a warrior. We're living a life within the context of conflict. Do you believe that? The American church has been lulled to sleep, folks. The American church does not understand that there is a battle going on between the principalities and powers of evil against that which is good, that is Christ and His kingdom. Because if the church, if we truly believe that, we would fight more. Now, I don't mean we would fight like the world fights. I don't mean that we would use these passages of Scripture like Paul Hill, a pastor within our own denomination, well, in another Presbyterian denomination, who graduated from Reformed Theological Seminary a little ways before me, and when he read passages like this, he went and bought a gun and he walked in in Pensacola, Florida into an abortion clinic and he killed in cold blood the abortion doctor and he said, I'm fighting against evil and I'm doing what's right. That is not what this is telling us to do. This is telling us that we're in the middle of a conflict and in the middle of a battle and that we're not to take it into our own vigilantianism, but that we're to fight Husbands, if you're married, I want to speak to you. I want to speak this to you. Fight for your wife's hearts. It's under attack. Wives, fight for your husband's hearts. They're under attack. Parents, you want to know what your greatest calling in this world is? Fight for your children. Fight for them. We said one of the things that we learned from Daniel 1, remember what it was? That Nebuchadnezzar was so brilliant that he was going to take the children and he was going to take the young people, and if he could influence them, he could crush and destroy an entire culture. If you think the evil one has changed his tactics, you're naive. Our young people are under attack today. Would you agree with that? Who's going to fight for them? We are. We have to. We're in a conflict. We're in a battle. And the American church simply says, well, I'll just, I don't know, I pray, that's important. But there's got to be more. We've got to engage. We've got to engage the processes. We've got to go and go into the places where there's addiction, where there's the cycle of poverty. And you can set your political views aside and simply go in and say, this person is caught. I stood in line yesterday at the Quick Mart and the woman in front of me bought 12 lottery tickets. Twelve! I wanted, I wish I'd known her. To say, why are you placing your hope in chance? Your financial future in in scratch offs. The church needs to go and be able to engage the lives of people who are putting their hope in the wrong things because they've lost hope in what's being presented to them. That's the role of the church. That's what we fight for. These battles that we fight. It calls us to this life of a warrior. And that we don't battle alone. And that we have confidence to face the suffering that we're experiencing today. Because we know who wins in the end. So in spite of present appearances, God is in control. And he will win the victory. Chapter 10, verse 13 is encouraging to me. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there, and I came to make understood what is to happen to your people in the latter days. He said this, I'm fighting. So here's what you need to do. Call on this king and this prince who fights for you and with you in the middle of it. Pray and engage and fight for your heart. Fight for your family. Fight for our church. And then the goal of history we see, and we're going to move on this one pretty quickly because but it says the goal of history that we learn through these passages of scripture is to put our lives into perspective. And I say this cautiously. I've heard more belly aching this week from people than I've heard in a long time. Clemson lost and South Carolina lost. Deal with those realities. Hillary lost, Trump won, possibly, because there's now a possible electoral college, this, and there's this, that, and oh no, there's the ringing of hands, and there's all of these things that are going on. Oh no, traffic has gotten worse on the island, yes? Get over it. What this passage of Scripture says to us is it puts our lives into a perspective that says, why are we worrying about some of these things? There are brothers and sisters throughout the course of history and in the day today who are being shredded and ripped apart for their faith. We have very little, if anything, to complain about. It doesn't mean that we don't suffer or have difficulty, but it helps put it in perspective because what this says to me, it could get a lot worse, McCutcheon. And it may. And if you're so disheveled By the little bit that you've experienced now, what are you going to do if one of these monsters truly shows up? And I truly allow them to unleash their fury upon you and the church. Will the church be able to stand? We're worried about the wrong things. We complain about the wrong things. So the goal of history puts our lives into perspective. The sixth thing that we learn It's this. Stay with me. almost done. The sixth thing that we learn is this. We live in a world that simply can't be fixed. We live in a world that simply can't be fixed. It has to be recreated. One of the authors that I was reading, preparing, said that he was on a walk with his son and they were walking and he looked down and there was a dead bird on the ground and the little boy went to it and knelt down next to it and looked up to his dad and said, Daddy, it can't be fixed, can it? said no son it can't be fixed folks the issues that we're facing within our world today cannot be fixed by human means what we're facing in the world today has to be recreated it has to have the power of the one who called all things into creation to enter in again through his power to recreate to bring about a social stability to bring about a wholeness Uh, of emotional wholeness within an individual. Because if we said that sin and the work of Satan is to to unravel God's shalom of the garden, then the work of the cross and the work of the power of Christ within the world through His church is to go back in and to say, we're going to reintegrate you. That there's going to be emotional wholeness. That there's going to be relational wholeness. That there's going to be social wholeness. uh, That there's going to be uh, within creation a natural wholeness. We shouldn't have to let the far left and the extremists within environmentalism be the only ones who speak for creation. The church should speak for creation and the preservation and the good care and stewardship of it. That we shouldn't let somebody else have to come and just send them off to go and get counseling somewhere else. The church should have a word for the person who's struggling with the disintegration of relationship, economic and otherwise. This world can't simply be fixed. It needs to be recreated. And then finally this. What's our response to all of these things? How are we supposed to respond? He shall seduce, that is, the king of the north, in, verse, in chapter 11. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and they shall take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. So here's a couple of simple things to take away. What's our reasonable response to all the things that we see taking place in the world today? The first is this, to believe. To be people of faith. It says the people who know their God. That word is the word yada. It is a word of deep intimacy and knowledge between a husband and a wife, uh, of such intimacy that there was nothing in between them. It's saying that we know God so well that we have a deep and abiding faith in Him and a trust in Him. That we believe what we know about Him. Listen to chapter 12, verse 13. And this is after everything is going on and this is the end of time. And He says this, the angel says and speaks, But go your way, Daniel, till the end. And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. We believe these things to be true. That we make it to the end. And knowing this, it says that we firmly resist. The second thing, the reasonable response, believe and resist. Believe and resist. I talk with people regularly. And what I find, it's, when they fall or when they just give up, is that usually, I think it was J.C. Ryle, I'll paraphrase him, that said Christianity hasn't been studied and found wanting. Christianity has been studied and found difficult and therefore left untried. That the battle is difficult, but that we're to stand, that we're to fight, that we're to resist the evil one, With everything that we have, we're to resist the evil one. In our home, I'm the father of three boys. If you don't think that sexuality and temptation through pornography is real within the world, just come and talk to my family. But we resist these things on behalf. You can't get to stuff in my home. You can try, but you're not going to get to it. That one of my sons asked for a flip phone because he said, Dad, I want to be pure for Christ and I want to be so pure that I'm willing to have a flip phone because I don't want all this media right there in my pocket all the time in my bedroom right there. We fight. We resist. We do what's necessary in the middle of it. We surround ourselves with people who are going to say this, I need you to help stand with me. Do you have any of those folks in your life? To help you resist? you know how easy it is to resist by yourself? Not at all. So I'll ask you, who's your 3 a.m. friend? Who's the person you call at 3 a.m. and you say, I am struggling. Things are not good. I know I told you today that things were good, but things aren't good. I'm not good, and I'm tired, and I'm ready to give in. I'm ready to stop believing the promises. I'm ready to give up. I'm ready just to go to sleep. And I'm just, I'm just ready. And is there somebody who will help you resist? We live unexamined lives and unexamined communities of faith. And I want us to live together. And then the final couple of things is simply this. We resist. Then we teach. It says you instruct others. Tell others about it. And then you pray. That's what we're going to look at next week. Chapter 9 is praying. So there's a lot that we can learn from these passages, right? Don't get caught up with all the little stuff. See the bigger picture. Don't get in arguments about these things with other people. I don't know if you're going to get ripped out early or you're going to stay to the end. I don't know if you're pre-millennial, amillennial, post-millennial, millennial at all, you know anything about that. All I know is this, and I truly do understand this, Christ wins in the end. I have not lost a night of sleep wondering if I'm going to get yanked out or not, if I'm going to be raptured or not. And I don't mean to make light of your theological position, but I want you to say this, that's not your hope. Because if that's your hope and you find out that you're wrong and you have to stay through a tribulation, then you are going to be dashed against the rocks. What you have to hope in is that Christ is the one who has already won. Agreed? Read these passages. Study them. Be fascinated by them. Recognize the pictures of history that are within them. And believe, resist, teach and pray earnestly. Let's pray together. Father, we come, we thank you for your word which you preserved for us. Things that are fascinating to the imagination, truths that overwhelm us, lead to such stark speculation that it leads us away from what we're supposed to understand. Daniel was encouraged because he knew the end from the beginning that he was promised that he was going to make it to the end. And so with that, it fortified his heart and he fought. And he was a man of character even into his latter years standing for you. I pray that for us. That knowing the end from the beginning, that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, indelibly marked there, never to be erased, never to be lost, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No, not anything. Knowing that, and we fight, and we stand, and we resist, and we love, and we trust you, and we believe these things. To him be the glory, now and forever. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn together.